This beating of the live hearts. Mermaids are mermaids. With all life considered. Hello, 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 and welcome to A Lovely Word. Hello. Hello. My name's Alex. My name's Rachel. I am Becky. And this is one of the loveliest podcasts you'll hear uh, in the last probably couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> this is the Lovely Word, the podcast edition. Whee! We've got loads of words. We've got loads of words and we're going to say them. Don't interrupt me. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, We've got Keisha Thompson on the poem, on the podcast even, uh, later on, that's good. She's a, she's a, a poet and uh, she was headlining, she was great. Um, we've got a bit of chitter-chatter about working class art, that, I think we'll go down a storm in your earbuds. Um, and we've got some lovely poems, yeah, there we go. Hold on to your horses, uh, let's take this rodeo for a ride. So there's been a lot of stuff recently about working class art. Has there? Well, yeah, there's just been a lot of flying about. What do we think? I think it's a good thing. Good thing. Yeah, I think um, working class art is possibly some of the most important art. Yeah. I think that um, it's a form of protest. Yeah. Um, but I also think that it's not totally representative because it's not just working class people who are subjugated, it's also underclass people who belong to different mm. societies that don't that aren't part of the labour force, maybe excluded from the labour force. Mm. So, you know, like people who maybe uh, have can't work due to physical impairment. Yeah. Or people who are have a strangest uh, immigration status where they're not allowed to work, you know. I think that's a good observation. I think for me, the big shift that's different in recent years, that's big, that the only shift, the real shift that's happened is that um, working class people have been allowed and have been very prolifically making art for ages, mm -hmm. right? All the time, right? Always went on. If you look at the West End, look at what went on there, all that sort of stuff. It's all a lot of working class artists, not of end of the pier, all that stuff comes from art comedians, club comedians, all that stuff. But we're getting to a stage now where artists who are working class are allowed to be um, uh, kind of part of a funded, subsidised programme mm -hmm. and part of like something um, a bit more, in inverted commas, respectable. Whereas people who just want to put on Oscar Wilde again are not allowed to be part of that anymore. For example, 20 Stories High in Liverpool. Yeah, who just put on Oscar Wilde. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also put out um, that amazing opportunity for people aged, was it from 16 or 18 to 30? Right. It's like a paid weekly oh, yeah. development No, that's program. great. Launch. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's, that's one of those things that gives working class and underclass people a kind of uh, venue to get professional. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's always paid. been this funny thing, isn't it, right? Where if you look at, like, sport... Like, union and league. League was... I know this is going somewhere, but league, you were paid to do league, and it was always professional, as union was always amateur, because it was all the posh people who played it. And now it's, like, the same... Do you see where I'm going with this? So you had to get paid. You have to... As a working-class person, you have to get paid to do mm -hmm. whatever you do. Yeah. It has to be a paid route, whereas um, if you're upper-class, the main difference is then you can afford to subsidise yourself or do something else and it to be a hobby for a while mm. in that way. So you can afford for it not to be as commercial. Yeah. 
um, whereas working class people have to commercialise earlier potentially. Yeah, and I think there's a privilege of being able to pursue what you want to pursue, obviously, that like Virginia Woolf, a room of one's own, you have to be able to to survive, <laughs> to be able to do anything yeah. that you want to do that's surplus to actual survival. Yeah, uh, like you could say that um, uh, unpaid internships and things like that are often a really, really um, poor idea when it comes to being inclusive, which is why some of those funded and subsidised pro- projects are so worthwhile, because they allow people time and space who otherwise would be have to, uh, would be having to work. Do you know what I mean? In a mm. different yeah. area than the one that they want to do. I um, think arts are, are fundamental to survival. Like. Mm-hmm having creative outlets for people does save lives. So Yeah, and yeah. and that expression, like I said, can be a form of rebellion and kind of a wet like you can build awareness through writing, you can galvanise people's motions through different types types of art and stuff like that. And that can be really important when it comes to like political mm. climates, social climates and being able to like recognise your own voice in different mediums is always really important in terms of identity, I think. I think that one area that is that has a lot of dominant working-class voices in that can make a lot of money is the music industry. Um, and I it, thought that when we started talking about this, like about Stormzy and the, like, yeah, when you think about popular music... working-class... I don't know about... But he talks about the streets quite a lot, doesn't he? Oh, does like, he? Oh, he's from that background. Yeah. Uh, but what I meant more, yeah, I actually was thinking about Oasis. <laughs> well, I was, and I was thinking about bands before them. The bands of the 60s, a lot of them were from really working-class backgrounds. Yeah. Some of them weren't. The Rolling Stones, a lot of them went to private school. But, like, there were loads of bands that could come out of Camden who were just, like, just a bunch of geezers who went down the pub and then they did that stuff and then they realised they could make a few bob doing that and they switched their their day jobs and they started gigging more and more and all the punks and everything were doing that and mm-hmm. then like recently grime artists and hip hop that comes directly from a working class black experience mm. a lot of the time um so like it definitely is and because there's a there's a route um to earn money sustainably doing it it allows those artists to 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 succeed in that way but also at the same time there is a massive thing of there is the opposite of that, which is... Well, there's affording the equipment and things yes, like that. Yes, there's like, all that stuff. People, people from working class backgrounds obviously do access it. Like, they work really hard to get those things and go for... And, but they just have to work twice as hard. Yeah, and they yeah. consistently innovate to find ways to mm-hmm. make it accessible. It's made accessible, like, all the pirate radios of the early noughties and grime... And then suddenly it all becomes unaccessible again and structures appear. Mm. And, like, it's like... It's funny that it works out like that, isn't it? Well, it's assimilating the language of protest into commercialist ventures, isn't it? And it seems like the reason why it was why it was successful in the first place because it was accessible to everyone, and then yeah. and then yeah. it becomes inaccessible. Yeah, it's just like working in the theatre in the West End in the early twentieth century to get into like just any kind of little <laughs> stage management position or anything. You said to like turn up and like be a little bit of a grafter, and mm-hmm. um, a lot of gays as well were hanging around there and speaking Polari. And that was all just a kind of fun old time. Um, but <laughs> but they had nothing to do with being working class or not. Uh, well, it was. There were a lot of working class people. But then it, it became a thing of snobbery as it became cooler. Fantastic. So up next, we have um, two poems. Um, first up, we have our good old friend, Joe. 
What, Joe, what a lovely, lovely lad. He does a poem about a bee. I think you'll like it. Um, and then after that, uh, we've got this wonderful poet called Heidi, who will be doing a poem about... Well, let's not say. Let's just leave leave the listener to work it out for themselves. <laughs> I know they'll enjoy it. <laughs> Bye, guys. Take it away. <laughs> Hello, so this is a poem I wrote in the summer, it's called Frisbee, so I hope you enjoy Can a bee be what the bee wants to be? Or does the bee have to be what the bee was made to be? Be brave, be busy, be the bee that works until the bee becomes dizzy. Be the bee that behaves brave and invades every camping trip, picnic, deep talk or honey moon walk on the beach just to reach the most beautiful flower. Be a busy, brave bee just like that for every second of every hour because that is what a bee must be. To be or not to be. That is what the bee has to be. Beholders always say, be your own bee. But it's hard to be your own bee when you are stuck in the body of a brave, busy bee which you are not made to be. Not being able to be the bee that you want to be or do what gives you a buzz. But since the beginning of time in this adamant hive on the eve of the house, you have been conditioned to be and always be a brave busy bee without any doubt. Even if that bee behavior does not befit the category of bee you were designed to be. So you are left bereft in a colony of wannabes, trying to please other bees with the bee they simply appear to be. Now you have two options. Plan A or Plan B. You can either go along with society buzzing silently, defiantly carrying your yellow and black backpack full of pollen problems and anxiety, rejecting your B destiny for the rest of your entirety, or you could finally be the B you should be. But be warned, the swarm will cause a storm spreading sweet lies in the hive to stop you from being the bee you want to be inside. They will throw you around like a frisbee. They will bully just because you no longer want to make honey. You will be befooled, you will be belittled, making you dance, waggle, wiggle to the paradiddle of embarrassment, letting everyone know that your worth as a bee is irrelevant. You will be betrayed, you will be beheaded, making you lose self-control, being directed and perfected into what's expected of a bee. Because a bee questioning what makes a bee a bee does not fly well with the bee policy. <laughs> Every bee wants to be free and they would if they could. But the bee they are trying to be cannot be understood although it should by now. However, it's not somehow. Beneath every bee and beyond is just a bewildered bee who doesn't know where to be long. But you must be leave. Don't lowercase your bee standards to these bee bad bandits. They are not worth this thing. Because you will not live another day to be queen bee or king. You may be shy, but that does not mean your stripes are not seen when you fly with your tie. So be the bee you want to be. Be the confident capital bold bee the wannabes don't want to see. Be the beacon of justice, buzz on behalf of the bees who have had their bee identity abducted. Because a bee can be whatever the bee wants to be. You just have to be brave and be busy enough in your own bespoke bee way to catch what matters most to be the bee you want to be today.
Thank you. Hi. Um, this poem is called The Foxes Are Voiceless, The Hunt Never Dies. The bunting is red, white and blue. The guns are pointing outward, loaded. The hunting begins. You'd think the crowd would thin at the cruelty, truly be sickened at the shooting, but they close in. Their television's tuned in. They're all assuming that these foxes have done something wrong. Not knowing when their backs are turned, their red tails give them away. Most of the populace is foxes these days, and the hunters, they never seem to run out of prey. But some fox keep ticking the boxes that put hunters above hunted and shy away when confronted with blood-covered bunting and blame those foxes for getting in the way. Say, the hunters all line up, beaming pride, glint in their eyes, mind pinpointing the prize. They're under the guise of being there for the people, evil. Wiser foxes stand behind, shouting from the sides, but out of the firing line, that's fine. The hunters are wearing their best. Can't hunt well unless you do up your tie, they blare the national anthem ranting. The hunt begins. One goes straight for the fox cubs. Starve them, she screeches. They've listened to her speeches, her demeanour unscrutable, her shoes. Well, they're beautiful, diamond studded. When the foxes were bloodied, she did not shed a tear. Some foxes are quaking with fear, but still some are watching, braying for blood, thinking they will never be next. On the right of the line is the people's man. Pint in hand, swilling, spilling, and somehow he's winning, breeding hate for the foxes who aren't quite the same, gunning down and around, but wait, what's that sound? A fox rears up, turns back on the hunters. He's grunting and gorgeous and soaring and furious. He draws up full height against this far right hunter who is grunting about boatloads and protecting our borders. But this fox with a sly smile spits in his eye. It's frothy, it's milky, it's a moment of history. While the foxes are voiceless, the hunt never dies. Riot ensues. The fox and their numbers are rabid and jumping, spitting and kicking. The hunters give back. A big fox grabs the blonde and in the mud they wrestle till another fox appears and twats him with trestle. Volumes of marks fly through the air and Lennon as slingshots the hunters are there, starting to shy. Till the fox in pig's clothing steps into the line. He twirls his baton. The foxes, mistaken, think he's on their side, till he starts to back the hunters. The foxes, they stumble, run, scatter, get underground. The fight can't be won while they're low on their numbers. The hunters all smirk. Their work here is done. The foxes still running, the pigs in pursuit. It starts to get dangerous, not sport anymore. The rebellion is stopped. The extinction goes on. The hunters go back to the places they've come from. They swill their champagne, roll out the red carpets for fox for hunters from far off who have bayonets sharpened. The foxes all gather in burrows and holes and vow to their fox cubs they'll protect all they own. The foxes are voiceless. The hunt never dies. Not while we foxes stand idly by. Thank you. So next up, we have our old mate, Kieran, from... I don't think he would appreciate the old adjective. Oh, I mean, I mean, he's a, a, our friend for a long time. <laughs> Kieran Hodges from uh, Writing on the Wall. He is a fantastic person in the poetry community. And this poem is like trees almost as a symbol of protest. 
and I really, really enjoyed it. Mm. Here goes a great poem about trees. Hey, how's it going? Is that all right? Uh, I've been writing a lot about trees. The older I get, I think I'm turning into one of those like tinfoil hats living in the woods, eating my own beets kind of thing. Um, uh, and I decided that this character in the poem was going to be identified as they, them, and had like a bit of an interesting conversation about how to use some grammar around it. So some of it might sound a little bit jarring, it's intentional, um, and it opens up with two quotes. The one is from Rabarin Darath Tagore, his poem Fireflies, and that quote is, trees are the earth's endless effort to speak to the listening heaven. And the second one is from Greta Thunberg, which is, once we start to act, hope is everywhere. Seeing how the hush of dirt nurtured us this far, they buries themselves in the forest. Works the nerves from their wrist around each root in blood packs of sap juice, making them and the earth guests of each other. The noiselessness clears, way, clears the way for their minds to recount the many stories of their multiple lives. And the soil smiles, remembers better through those faces how much closer they used to be. Eventually, they're all caught up. So they curls up into the lap of the dark and in sleep grow strong enough to break through their ribcage like their heart finally did explode from the weight of the world and woke as a sweep of branches, veins having burst into wings, proof maybe that a place this harsh will turn you inside out after all. Welcoming the beauty of how each dutiful ache incentivizes falling to the dead weight they is free from the spider's web disguised as safety net. The deceit and debt of power, how souls, when glowing, cast shadows along the underside of skulls. Now the wind comes through their hollowed skin, gathering to hoist them towards the mumbling storm where clouds like inkwells wait for the tips of leaves to swell and write cursive with each passing breeze. They idles the empty air between, thinking meaning is just another beginning, Clear and intentional as a leaf opens up to the sun, all their thoughts now are oxygen. Others bury to be rid, but they buried fines, solid lines, under the weight of generations gone. Drawn in grief-stricken striations, the story of our enduring earth admits that language is an ecosystem. Tongues coexist with the changing kingdom we live amidst. They fall fingers into the scripture of a fist and speak with clattering urgency. I stand and I resist. Cheers. Oh, so we had a headliner. Keisha Thompson. Keisha Thompson. She's fantastic. She's from Manchester. She is a poet, performer, writer. singer, writer, maths tutor. Maths tutor. Yeah. Extraordinaire. The best mix. She came down and did a workshop for us first as well, which was really amazing. Focused on people's creativity and how to get the best out of them using the spoken word as a medium for that. And about taking up space. Yeah, kind of like owning your space and feeling like, I think... I felt like the, the main aim of it was almost to give you permission, which oh, is yeah. quite interesting to get up and speak your words and like own the space as your own. Some, and it was interesting because everyone does it in a different way. Some people came up and were really boisterous and that's how they got everyone to be quiet in some of the exercises and other people would get up and be like, 
really quite quiet, but that would still make everybody quiet. So, yeah, working with everybody's mm. individual, different way of running a stage. And being okay with it all. Mm-hmm. So what, um, what we've got here is Keisha's done an interview with Becky. Yep. And Becky's asked her a few questions and she's responded. The noise isn't great on that one, so we apologise in advance. But bear with us and you'll get through it with us. And then after that, what have we got? We've got a poem called... Well, it's not a poem. It's a section from her play. Yeah. Um, and uh, she chose to read this excerpt out at the night. It's called Eccentricity, and it's a really good example of how she takes scientific, mathematic, classical references and makes them relatable uh, to pretty much anybody. I don't think her language is difficult. No. It can be challenging, but it's 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 really, really well-crafted. Mm. So without... I guess you've got. Yes, Eccentricity from Man on the Moon, which is part of the British Council Showcase. Lovely. Let's hear. Hi there, this is Becky from A Lovely Word. Um, I'm here as usual with our headliner interview with Keisha Thompson. Um, So today we did a workshop with Keisha. It's one of our first kind of like outside people to come in and do a workshop. It was fantastic. Um, So I just thought I'd maybe ask you about how you got into running workshops and if there's anything that you find really rewarding about them. Um, In terms of running workshops, I was blessed enough to work with practitioners so I was like in dance groups and choirs and stuff like that from quite a young age and when they 